0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. It has been a month with a number of significant developments in the global battle against coronavirus. The Trump administration counting on Operation Warp Speed to lead the way in vaccines with plans for a mass inoculation program once it's deemed safe and effective. By the numbers, we have seen an estimated 30 million cases around the world with more than 940,000 deaths globally. And the U.S. is leading the number of deaths as we approach close to 200,000 Americans who have died from COVID-19. Just ahead, our conversation with Dr. Rich Besser. He's a practicing physician, best-selling author, former medical correspondent for ABC News, and he served as the acting director of the CDC. Now he is the president and CEO of the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation. But first, the comments of the current CDC director, Dr. Robert Redfield. He talked about masks and vaccines. He did so before a recent Senate hearing.
1: I might even go so far as to say that this face mask is more guaranteed to protect me against COVID than when I take a COVID vaccine because the immunogenicity may be 70%. And if I don't get an immune response, the vaccine is not going to protect me. This face mask will.
0: That from Dr. Robert Redfield, the director of the CDC during a recent Senate hearing. And joining us on the phone is the former acting director, Dr. Rich Besser. Thanks for joining us on C-SPAN's The Weekly. We appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here.
0: You now, of course, head up the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation. But I want to get your first reaction to what Dr. Redfield told that Senate committee
1: yeah you know i i I don't agree with him uh fully on that uh but but the overarching message uh i I think is the right one that for uh the near to mid future uh we are going to need to rely on uh, these basic public health measures to control this and that's wearing masks uh, keeping six feet apart from from others washing our hands uh, making sure there's there's f- rapid testing, frequent testing available, and and that health departments have the capability to to identify who sick people have had contact with and provide resources for 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 uh, quarantining people. The the disagreement I have is that that wearing a mask um, is really about protecting those around you. and and The reason that CDC changed its recommendation from one that said, no, masks are really for healthcare workers who are in settings where they're having direct contact with people who clearly have COVID to one where they say, no, the general public needs to wear masks. The reason for that change was a recognition that um, a lot of disease transmission occurs from people who don't know that they're sick and don't yet have symptoms or may never develop symptoms. So by wearing that mask, what I'm saying is I care about your health. I don't know. Maybe I have COVID and and don't know it. And I'm wearing my mask to protect you. And it would be great if you wore your mask to protect me.
0: And we're getting this guidance from the CDC. But you've been very critical. In fact, in a number of interviews over the summer, you said that this guidance came very, very late. And my question is, why?
1: Well, one of the, the biggest challenges that we've had during this pandemic is that uh, the CDC has been marginalized. They've been sidelined. You know, they're doing incredible work. But one of the most powerful tools that the CDC has and has had over the course of its history is the ability to to talk directly to the public, to engender trust, to help the public understand where recommendations are coming from, and by doing so, increase the likelihood that people will will follow their advice and do things that will protect health of uh, themselves, their families and their communities, because of a difference in opinion uh, and a narrative between CDC and the highest levels of the federal government, uh, when CDC said this is going to get bad, uh, they were put off to the side and they weren't allowed to continue talking to the public. And that's been a challenge because as the CDC has learned more and guidance has changed, many times the, the new guidance seems like it's coming from left field. Because they haven't been able to say, here's what we learned, here's why we're changing this guidance, and here's why it's so important for everyone in America, regardless of political persuasion, to wear masks and, and help reduce transmission in communities.
0: Let me take that one step further, because USA Today recently published an extensive and exhaustive investigative report based on the early handling of coronavirus in February and early March. We talked to Letitia Stein, one of the investigative reporters, and one of the conclusions based on the emails that they had read, more than 42,000 emails, is that when state and local officials turned to the CDC, they were getting either misinformation, wrong information or no response at all. Here's what she told us.
1: There were some
0: common themes in these uh, thousands of pages of emails we received in all 42,000 roughly. And that was that, you know, people had questions, had worries. What are we supposed to do in this circumstance? Um, How do I know whether or not, you know, the following piece of guidance should be followed this way? Or asking for basic information about travelers coming from these overseas countries at a point in time that we were supposed to be containing the virus by limiting uh, travel into this country. And these questions either did not get answered, or at times the CDC told them, "You know, we're looking into it. We don't have clear answers." And there were also times in which it was indicated that it was best for locals to be making these decisions. Dr. Rich Besser, you understand the CDC better than most people. How could that happen?
1: Well, you know, I, I led emergency response at CDC for for four years, and led the agency at the start of the H1N1 uh, pandemic in 2009, and. One thing is, is a given at the start of a new public health crisis. And that's that what you don't know far exceeds what you do know. And you make guidance best on the, based on the best available science. As you learn more, you, you change, you change what you're recommending. Um, what, what happened at the start of this pandemic was a situation where very quickly public health was taken out of that lead role for decision making. And there was a lot of uh, tension, and the the tension continues between what CDC was able to move forward on from a purely public health perspective and what they could not because the political narrative was was so different from what public health was saying. Um, And without clear leadership, without a a person from CDC being out front, being able to, to shape the understanding of the public, um, you have a situation where, where no one is sure which direction to go. Uh, you don't have the kind of learning that you want to see from, from what's taking place around the country. Uh, and you have a, a, a situation where uh, there, there's not a clear national strategy and way forward uh, that could, could uh, re- reduce the impact across the country. And, and that went on for, for quite some time before the real semblance of how to approach this. Um, took shape and uh, again was 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 adapted and and changed at the state level, but at least it became clear what the what the ways forward uh, could be to contain this.
0: And we're seeing new reports on how politics may be playing a role in these CDC reports. You write the following quote: "To meddle with, delay, or politicize these reports would be a form of scientific blasphemy." Is the public losing trust in these public health agencies, like the CDC and NIH and others?
1: Well, I, I worry that they are, and, and polling data shows that that's the case. That the the percentage of people who trust CDC and trust FDA is is declining. And annually, uh, when, you, when 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 surveys are conducted each year of the federal government and the most trusted uh, departments, the CDC has always ranked near the top. Uh, the trust in CDC has been enormous, and the agency counts on that. And it's 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 trust that has been well earned. But one important thing to know about trust is that once you lose it, uh, it can be really challenging to to get it back. And we're entering a period here as as companies are working to develop vaccines, where if the the nation loses trust in the in the approval process by FDA or the recommendations that come forward from, from CDC, then you could have a vaccine that people don't wanna get. And that would be disastrous uh, because one of the biggest hopes we have in terms of the ability to contain this pandemic would be if there were a safe and highly effective vaccine. You know, We wouldn't be able to quickly move away from the other measures that are in place but the hope would be that eventually, uh, if there were a safe and effective vaccine, you would be able to 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 step back from what we're currently doing and move forward like we do with a lot of contagious diseases, with a vaccine strategy as the primary means of control.
0: And so how do we get there? How do we make sure that a vaccine is safe and is effective?
1: Well, it's, you know, it's it's one of the things, Steve, that really, really worries me, and it's why Uh, I wrote that that piece and why, you know, I've been speaking out and, uh, you know, as a former acting director of CDC and a number of former CDC directors have been speaking out. Because uh, if if we allow this to just happen and we don't call it out, if we allow um, political appointees to meddle with the science, um, then not only will the public lose trust, but. But states and locals who count on CDC for guidance will will lose trust, and it will be a free-for-all. You know, we need to know that what comes out of CDC, uh, you know, the, what I was re- writing about in that Scientific American opinion piece was reports about meddling with the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, the MMWR. You know, most people in the public have never heard of this. Uh, and there's a reason. The, the target audience are public health professionals and, and, and clinicians. And it is really the, the journal of record. Uh, it's the place where CDC publishes very quickly reports of investigations. It, it publishes recommendations. Uh, and, yeah, it is considered sacrosanct by the, the public health community. So the idea that a political appointee might reach down and change something in there. Um, is really, really disturbing and concerning because the findings that have come out in that during this pandemic have been really important. You know, just last week, the findings in there about transmission from a child care center to, uh, to uh, uh, people at home from children who were asymptomatic. Well, that's really important and it supports the importance of doing testing around any child who, uh, who tests positive because they, they can transmit. This is really critical information, and and you you don't want to think that that politics has influenced the interpretation of it, or the dissemination of it, or has delayed the spread of it. Um, And we've been seeing over and over again instances where uh, politics has tried to to mess with with science, and the outcome has not been good.
0: If I told you back in mid-January, nine months ago, that by mid-September, we would be quickly approaching 200,000 deaths as a result of coronavirus, what would you have said to me?
1: Well, you know, back in January, um, there were models that were all over the place. Uh, There were some models that were predicting, you know, millions of deaths. Uh, There are models that were predicting hundreds of thousands of deaths. And so... um, I don't know in January that I would have been surprised. I, I may have been because the initial reports coming out of China um, were were not open and honest. You know, there were were reports that there was no transmission to healthcare workers, which would have indicated a very different kinds of uh, of trajectory. Um, but early on, I, I've been in this this world of outbreak response long enough that I know that early predictions. Um, are inherently uh, unreliable. You know, they can get you started, but but it's the refining of those predictions as you get data to inform your models that becomes more and more helpful. You know, the early models during the H1N1 uh, swine flu pandemic in 2009 were not very helpful, but over time, as there were better inputs to those models, they became more more useful. The other thing about about models that it's so important to remember, and and this goes for interpreting the models right now, is that the models are not a crystal ball. And what we do matters. And if you look at the the incredible success countries around the globe have had in controlling this pandemic, um, we can do that as well. If we get together as a nation and decide that we want to implement those same control measures, that everyone will wear a mask, not just those uh, people who uh, uh, disagree with, with, with the president. Um, but, we, but if everyone to wear, was to wear a mask and to practice social distancing and to take this seriously, we would get this under control and down to levels that would make it much safer to reopen the economy. Um, so I don't like to look towards numbers that predict uh, something by the end of the year uh, and say, well, wow, that's where we're going to be. Uh, I, I like to look at those models and say, okay, what can we do? What is in our power to do to make that prediction wrong? And if you go at it that way, you can save a lot of lives.
0: And yet part of the reality, and we have seen this over the last year, we are a deeply divided, a very partisan country and for many people, wearing a mask is a political statement. Why is that? Why did this become such a partisan political issue?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, in, in the years that I ran emergency response, uh, we tried to do everything possible during a response to, to keep the, the efforts nonpartisan, unified. Uh, and there was a period here uh, during the response when Congress came together and almost unanimously passed the CARES Act and provided resources to people around the country, uh, provided uh, dollars in people's pockets with, with checks and supplemented unemployment insurance and put in place uh, eviction and, and mortgage protection, uh, a, a, a moratorium on evictions and, and, and put in place uh, uh, mortgage protection that was incredible and it gave me some hope that maybe we would come together as a nation around this uh, but that hasn't been the case and there's been this conflict uh, of narratives where where public health has has continued to talk about what a what a dire situation this pandemic is and how what we do matters and there's been a political narrative that says hey there's nothing really to worry about and that, when that happens, when you don't have the political leaders standing next to their public health leaders and having their public health leaders drive the recommendations, um, then, then you're in a situation like we're in now where you don't see people, uh, uniformly adopting those recommendations and, and it costs lives. And, you know, coming into an election, I don't have any, uh, you know, false uh, hope that we are going to get where we need to be, uh, but hopefully, um, after the political season, uh, we can see some change and some coming together, and uh, hopefully reach the point where wearing a mask is the patriotic thing to do. Uh, it's something we do for for each other. So if you look at how this pandemic has been playing out around this country, it's, it's hit every community, but not every community in the same way. And you know, uh, Black Americans, Latino Americans, Native Americans, low-income Americans are being infected and and dying at rates that far surpass the proportion of, uh, of the population. Uh, and our recent poll showed that the economic impact uh, similarly is hitting those same communities much harder than it's hitting other communities. Every day there's another report. The latest CDC report looking at deaths in children found that 75% of the deaths in children are occurring among uh, black, Latino, and Native American children. Uh, when when they make up a much, much lower proportion of the population. That should be unacceptable in America because we have the ability to change that and ensure that everyone has what they need to protect themselves, their families, and their communities. But it takes political will to get that done.
0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully, and we're talking with Dr. Rich Besser, among his other resume items. The author of the best-selling book, Tell Me the Truth, Doctor, Easy to Understand Answers, to your most confusing and critical health questions. The book came out a few years ago. In terms of the vaccine, what's the critical question?
1: Well, I think the critical question that people will have is, does the vaccine work? Will it protect me from, from COVID infection? And is it safe? And both of those questions, we don't have answers on yet. When 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 people ask me now about you know the vaccine that's coming this fall and and what do I think about it, um, I try and change people's expectations because in my mind it's still a, a big if you know if there's a vaccine uh, you know it's it's exciting and I'm optimistic given the amount of of, of resources that are going in to try and develop a, a vaccine, the different approaches in terms of vaccine technology. Uh, that are being being tried, so that gives gives me hope. But if you think you know about infectious diseases that have had just overwhelming impact on people's health, um, many of them the the efforts to develop a vaccine have been unsuccessful. So we don't have a, a safe, effective vaccine against malaria, uh, HIV, dengue fever, hepatitis C. These are really big public health issues, and there have been efforts, big efforts, to try and make a vaccine, and we don't have one. So, you know, it, it's really important that people focus on the public health measures, the wearing a mask and hand washing and, and social distancing we've been talking about. Um, the other thing about a vaccine is that there's, there's the movie version of a vaccine, and that's where, you know, in the last 20 minutes, a vaccine's developed, everyone gets it, and the world is saved. Um, and there's the reality of a vaccine. And that's that vaccines really vary in terms of the amount of protection they can provide. So a vaccine like the measles vaccine is one of the best vaccines that's out there in terms of protection. You know, about 95% of people who get it will be protected from from measles. But there are other vaccines. If you think about the, the flu shot that we all get each year or should get each year, and I recommend everyone get gets each year, it varies year to year how much protection you'll get. Some years it's 50 60%. And some years in the elderly, the the group at highest risk, it's zero. It, it gives no protection. And so, you know, the FDA has set a bar for approval for a COVID vaccine, that it has to be at least 50%. It has to reduce your risk by at least 50% for, for approval. Um, but if it's that around 50%, that's going to mean that you still have to do these other measures. You're still going to need to wear a mask and do, do social distancing until there's enough uh, 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 immunity within communities that the virus stops being able to transmit so easily. Other questions that are unanswered about the vaccine is, if you get the vaccine um, and it works, how long does protection last? And if you get the vaccine and it works, can you still get, you know, catch the virus and spread to others, or will it prevent you from being able to spread the virus? So lots of questions that scientists are looking at for which there's no answers. And so um, it's really important to, to set people's expectations correctly. Uh, I always believe, believed and I believe now that underpromising and over-delivering uh, is the way to go when it comes to, to most measures in public health. Um, If it turns out that a vaccine is more effective than than people thought um, and lasts longer in terms of protection than people thought, well, that's that's terrific. But if people's expectation is that it's a magic bullet, I think regardless of when the vaccine comes, they're going to be uh, sorely disappointed.
0: And Dr. Besser, in your capacity as the head of the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation, you keep track of another public health component, to those Americans without insurance. What is the latest number? How many millions of Americans don't have insurance? And how does that complicate this public health crisis?
1: Yeah, you know, we're the only wealthy nation that that doesn't ensure that all of its citizens have access to safe, affordable, high-quality health care. And at the start of this pandemic, there were 28 million people in America without health insurance and tens of millions more who were underinsured. So they might have insurance if they got hit by a bus that would cover major things. But they didn't have the kind of insurance that people really want, which is if I'm sick, I can go to the doctor and I'm not going to end up with a big bill. Um, In our country, so much of health insurance is tied to people's jobs. And what we've seen during this pandemic is that unemployment has soared. And so it's hard to say at this point, the impact of that, how many people who have maybe some short-term coverage coming out of their job, how many of them will be able to maintain that coverage? Uh, you know, one of the things the Affordable Care Act did when uh, uh, it became law is it allowed states to expand their provision of Medicaid and Medicaid is is, is incredible. It provides health care services for the uh, lowest income people in our country. It provides uh, the majority of nursing home care services. It provides uh, uh, health insurance for people with disabilities and certain other conditions. And 12 states haven't expanded that. And those are states that have the highest proportion of people of color. Uh, so again, uh, that's a factor in terms of, of why we're seeing disparities in terms of race and income. Uh, so it would be a terrific thing if during this crisis, those states said, "Here's one thing that we can do that will make a, pe- a difference in people's lives. We can expand, uh, we can expand health health insurance coverage." Uh, that's a short-term step. In terms of long-term, um, there are a number of policy things that we're lifting up as as a foundation. That they could have a big impact in terms of people's opportunity for for health. One is one is moving towards universal, moving to universal healthcare coverage, and there are many ways to get there. And uh, you know, if if we could agree across parties that the goal was was universal coverage, then I think the details could be worked out in terms of the path to get there. Another couple things that would be really really valuable. One would be to ensure that. Every, every working person in America had sick leave and family medical leave. Uh, about half of the lowest-income uh, workers in our country don't have that, which means that someone who is, who is a lower-income worker who lives paycheck to paycheck uh, may be put in a situation of having decide, to decide. They think they're, they're sick. They're not sure what's going on. They're having to decide, do I stay home so that if I have something, I don't spread it to somebody else? or do I go to work so I can put food on the table and pay the rent? And that's not a, a choice that anyone in our country should, should have to make. So sick leave, family medical leave, uh, ensuring that everyone has unemployment insurance. Uh, about half of our workers don't have unemployment insurance. These are some of the basics that can provide a safety net uh, for, for individuals so that in a time of crisis, they can make it through uh, uh, more safely Uh, and to ensure that when there isn't a pandemic, that every day in their lives isn't a potential crisis.
0: So, Dr. Besser, what are you seeing in your region? I know the New Jersey governor appointing you on a commission. You're also a member of a regional commission looking at what's happening in the Northeast. What's occurring on the ground? What stands out?
1: Well, what stands out to me in in, in New Jersey, uh, you know, this is my home state. I grew up here. It's where our foundation is located. Uh, What stands out to me is that if you follow the public health playbook, if you are willing to be led by public health science, and if your focus is on equity, making sure that everyone has what they need to protect themselves, their families, and community, you can get this under control. If you remember, New York City and New Jersey were two of the areas that were hit hardest early in the pandemic. Well, now... New Jersey rates as one of the top states in terms of, of response. We have one of the lowest transmission rates. Uh, we've been able to get a lot of people back to work. Uh, we're seeing what happens when you follow the public health playbook. And that's really, really exciting. Uh, you know, and a lot of it comes to, to leadership from the top and, and making sure that you're willing to make those hard decisions. And if you try something and it doesn't work, that you you roll it back. The the tools that that states have right now are these public health tools. And so as you try and get people back to work and you're uh, reopening different sectors, um, you have to be collecting the data to be able to look at the impact across your region, across your state. You have to be able to look at data by race and ethnicity, by gender, by disability, by zip code, because you can look good at a, a state level or even a county level. But if you're not breaking it down by those groups that have been hit hardest, you may miss something going on. The other piece that I've, I've been really, um, really uh, uh, jazzed up about is the, the information sharing that's been taking place uh, in this regional coordinating group. This is seven states in the Northeast that have been sharing approaches and, and bringing to the table tough decisions. You know, the decisions around, well, you know, as these numbers have come down and you have transmission to low levels, um, how do you think about reopening things that are so important to the fabric of society um, but might be considered not essential, like youth sports? How, how do you think about that? It's so important. I'm a pediatrician and a parent. I know it's important for kids to be out and be active and be engage with other children. Well, what's the trade-off? Do you have to be at zero cases for that to take place uh, or, or what? And how do you manage expectations? How do you ensure that you are not uh, leading to wide transmission within your, your area if you're going to move forward to, to open up some of these activities that are so important to, to people across the area. As schools reopen, as, as colleges and universities come back, sharing information so that when uh, one area tries something and it works, you can, you can emulate that. And when one area tries something and it doesn't work, you can make sure you don't fall into the same trap. This is what's, what's really important, and it's, it's one of the things that has been uh, missing at the federal level, the kind of coordination and sharing across the entire nation. And one of the reasons that you haven't seen that at the national level is that the, the political messaging um, has, not, has not pushed for, for national coordination. It's basically um, said, hey, states, you're, you're on your own on this. Um, do what you want um, there's no need to to follow a national playbook, and and that's really concerning.
0: Who do you blame?
1: Well, I, you know, I, I I blame our political leaders. Uh, you know, CDC uh, uh, has led uh, every public health uh, crisis uh, since its its founding, and so to be in a situation where uh, they've been marginalized um, is you know, is catastrophic. Uh, It is one of those things that is is really um, uh, one of the the failure factors that we have to uh, face up to here.
0: So let me conclude with a final practical question based on your expertise and best practices of what you're seeing in your part of the country, and that is the distribution of a vaccine. We did get some guidance from the CDC, but from your perspective, how will that work?
1: Well, the the guidance from CDC is uh, is really important because you need to be playing off uh, a national playbook. Um, states have been doing uh, planning, and now they have a framework from CDC that they need to follow. They need to get their 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 plans to the CDC in in about 30 days. Um, and there's some principles that are there that are really important. And it's going to be important for the general public to understand, and that's that. Early on, you want to make sure that you're vaccinating those people who are essential to keep things going. So frontline healthcare workers, frontline workers in other areas. Uh, you want to make sure that you're vaccinating those who are at highest risk. So you want to make sure that the vaccine distribution system is set up so that it's, it's based on true need and not social connection or, or, or income. Uh, so much in our society is, is relegated based on those, those factors. It's important that vaccine distribution doesn't happen that way. And, uh, again, as we were saying before, you can have a vaccine uh, that is highly effective, but if the work hasn't been done to ensure that everyone has faith in that vaccine, and that means working with communities that have had a history of being marginalized and, and treated poorly by public health and, and the healthcare system, You want to make sure everyone uh, is ready and trust that any vaccine that's recommended is safe and effective and people are going to want to line up and get it.
0: The advice and recommendations from Dr. Rich Besser. He is a pediatrician, the former acting director of the CDC and now president and CEO of the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation. We thank you for your time.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: And a reminder, if you've missed any part of this program, C-SPAN's The Weekly, it is available as a podcast. You can check it out and all of our programs at cspan.org slash podcasts. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.